0: OMG, (laughs) as the kids say. It is Tuesday, November 9th. I'm Guy Adami. I'm always joined by my dear friend, Dan Nathan. You are watching Market Call. We renamed the show, but we're still bringing you the top macro headlines of the week and our best investment and trading insights. We're going to be joined by the great Chris Vecchio, the senior strategist at Daily FX. Today's Market Call is being brought to you by our presenting sponsors, IGUS, one of the fastest growing Forex dealers in North America. And of course, Dan, Open Exchange, because as you know, they manage virtual meetings that matter for the top companies around the world. I am geeked up, Dan Nathan, how are you?
1: You are geeked up. Hey, we got a new name, but do we have a new outlook, Guy? You and I have been slightly pessimistic as we've had this kind of runaway breakout over the last month or so here. And there do seem to be, some kind of headwinds coming here, you know? I mean, it really feels like all of a sudden some things are building and some people who you want to listen to about markets, about bubbles, about, you know, exuberant kind of sentiment are, are kind of sounding the alarm a little bit, huh? The first one we want to listen to is the great Michael Burry
0: of The Big Chill. You remember that movie? It was great. Kevin Costner, by the way, was supposed to be in it. He didn't make it. But Michael Burry said, Elon Musk may want to sell his Tesla stock. Remember, over the weekend, Elon Musk tweeted to his million or so followers should i sell tesla stock and they emphatically said yes and michael said it to cover his personal debts and compares the current market to get ready for this dan the dutch tulip bubble which as you know i lived through and it was not pretty dan nathan
1: Yeah, guy, 63 million followers, 63 million followers. And I think the point that uh, Michael Burry brings up is that, you know, he doesn't pay tax because he doesn't get paid by the companies that he founded and works for. And what he does is he goes to the big investment banks and he pledges his stock against massive sorts of loans. Right. And so when you think about it, sooner or later, when you have options, stock options coming due, ultimately, you have to exercise them and pay tax on them. So that's what's happening. here. This is a kind of funky situation, especially when you consider how much uh, Tesla has rallied over such a short period of time, gaining, what, a half a trillion dollars in market cap in the last two months or so. So I guess Burry's point is this is kind of a bit of a ruse, if you think about it. So pulling your 63 million Twitter followers and saying, I'm going to do what you say, whether I should buy or sell stock. I think there's a lot of issues here. I think he front run the company here. Supposedly his brother who is uh, involved with the company also sold stock before that announcement. And what's important here is the unusually positive sentiment around this story. It is divorced from fundamentals. And now we see the stock over 10% from its highs from just last week. And I guess the point is, if you were to see this stock come back to a level that you've talked about, that $900 breakout level, right, that it had not been above since this past January, if it were to come back there, that would be a 20, 25% peak to trough decline. It's the fifth largest stock in the S&P 500. So what does that mean for the broad market? That
0: would make a lot of sense to me, by the way, if it were, in fact, to do that. And we're showing some signs of it today. What it mean for the broader market? Well, it means we're right up against this uptrend line that you drew. That's a great line, by the way. And again, that 200-day moving average, which as we speak, it's amazing. When we first started doing this a while back, we talked about a 200-day moving average either side of 4,000. Each passing day, it grows. Now it's about 42.40. And again, it's right in the crosshairs. If you look, that is effectively that 200-day moving average works as a trend line. And I think if we do break this short-term uptrend line that you have drawn, the first level is 44.80 or so, which is the 50-day, and then the 200-days in the crosshairs. It's a lot of interesting things going on below the surface we've talked about for a while. The only thing impervious has been recently until now, I guess – The S&P 500, Dan.
1: Yeah. And if you look at the NDX, the NASDAQ 100, we know those five or six names that we talk about, Microsoft, Apple, Google, Amazon, Facebook, and now Tesla. So that's six names. They make up about 25 percent of the S&P, but they make up nearly 50 percent of the NASDAQ 100 here, which is pretty astounding if you think about it. And I'm agreeing. These charts look basically identical, Guy. But if you were to get like a Microsoft, which is outperformed or an Amazon that's outperformed of late um, and you were getting them all going in the same direction, you could have a a bit of a snowball situation, and then you are sniffing that 50-day moving average in, in a heartbeat, I think. And your 200-day is really lining up. And it's crazy to think about, guy. It literally will be near the October lows, right? And that does not seem too unreasonable if we were to have a sell-off over the next few weeks into year end. You just have to wonder what's going to
0: precipitate that. And you know, what which one of the MAGA names are we going to lose? That's really what the story is. And listen, the one that's telling a much different story, though, is the RTY, obviously the small cap index, which basically is saying, you know what, the economy is going to reopen in a major way. These businesses that are most levered to the economy are going to do really well. Maybe that's on the back of the news from Pfizer, maybe it's on the back of the infrastructure bill, maybe it's a combination of those two or other things as well. But the RTY is broken out. And I've said for a while that I thought. Small caps, we're going to tell the tale. If I'm true to my word, it's telling a much different story than we just talked about in terms of the SPX and the, N- and the NDX.
1: Yeah, it is. I mean, listen, you're seeing this rotation right out of some growth names into more GDP cyclical sort of um, names here or GDP sensitive, that is. And that infrastructure bill obviously helped that narrative a little bit. But that lack of performance over the last nine months really does make a bullish case. If you buy into the fact that some of the growth that we lost in Q3 might be picked up in Q4 and helps accelerate into 2022, that makes sense to me. Listen, you know the levels here. You can look at the RTY you can look at the IWM, however you want to do it, that breakout level that we just had last week should serve as support. If it comes back in and holds that 200-day or the 50-day-ish or whatever, I think that's fine too. But if you're bullish on the U.S. economy, then you probably want to be positioned bullishly in the Russell 2000 here and you have the levels to shoot at uh, on the downside that should be support.
0: Without question. But there was a time and place when Apple was sort of the barometer for the broader market. Maybe it was Amazon. I think today it's Tesla, which is the chart we're looking at now. And he obviously had that parabolic move post earnings. Now, I said for a while on this show, I said it on Fast Money, that I thought we would test and basically trade through that prior high in January, that $900.30 high and probably top out around 1000 And that's what happened on earnings, I believe, on October 27th. Well, It actually added to that and traded up to 1240. Now we have this little island potential for an island reversal. It's interesting. I'll stand by that. I still think we're going to trade down to 900. The question is, if that, in fact, does happen, what happens to the aforementioned NDX and S&P 500? That's really the question. What are your thoughts here, Dan? I think you probably share a similar view as I do.
1: Yeah, no doubt about it. I think your point, though, about Apple used to be the barometer versus Tesla right now. You know, Apple back in the day, though, never traded at a a multiple that most investors were too worried about, not until very recently during the pandemic when it started trading at a market multiple. So I guess the point about Tesla is that its valuation had always been divorced from technology multiples and also certainly auto multiples. And so investors are trying to figure out what this company is. Is it a tech company or is it an auto company? And, you know, with $1.2 trillion market cap at its highs last week, it made up like 85% of the global market cap of all automobile companies that are publicly listed, which is insane when you think about the fact that they have low single digit market share in total auto. So this week, it'll be really interesting. Rivian, which is gonna be a competitor in the electric vehicle um, space is coming public. It's maybe rumored to be 60, 70, $80 billion. Let's see if that helps to be a sort of a sentiment top in this space. But you might see investors making room in their Tesla position, which has performed magnificently right over the last year to kind of get a greater exposure, whether it be in Rivian or Lucid or there's some other names that have come public in the last year or so in the EV space. So this is not a one trick pony anymore, at least as far as exposure for investors to the space. We're going to
0: take a look at two names that are sort of the push-me-pull-you of this market. The first one caught everybody's imagination a few years ago, took a breather. Now it's off to the races again, Dan, and that's NVIDIA. You can wax poetic about why on valuation, and you have all the metrics in front of you. This makes no sense. And quite frankly, you're 100% right. And maybe it is exhausting itself now on extraordinary news, but- this stock has been a monster now for the last three and a half, four months.
1: Yeah, I mean, since the beginning of October, Guy, the stock has gone from just under 200 to just over 300. When you think about that in market cap terms with nearly an $800 billion market cap, I mean, that is astounding, 50%. That's not normal. And I guess that's one of the things that I, that's the only thing I can say to you about my 25 years in the business and watching the dot-com bubble kind of inflate and then burst and then into the financial crisis with a whole different group of stocks and then this last 10 Years as we think about mobile and social and cloud and the sort of valuations that we've seen here. This is not normal to have a one-month multi like hundred, $300 dollars in market cap being gained because of a bunch of buzzwords. They're AI, it's autonomous, it's metaverse, it's all these sorts of things. That doesn't make the sense. This will have a reckoning at you know 65 times earnings and about 30 sometimes sales for a hardware company, because that's essentially what they do, right? If you're making chips that doesn't make a whole heck of a lot of sense. I think at some point, you're going to see this thing pull back to the sorts of breakout levels like you saw in Tesla. But then the question is, what about the bad stories of the market, Guy? The ones that used to be very, very popular names that are now going the other way.
0: Yeah. And that's our next one is PayPal, which is really fascinating. And it seems like PayPal sort of sealed their fate in terms of this move when they, I understand they denied the announcement, but that Pinterest news obviously took a lot of air out of the sales. Now, this was happening long before that Pinterest news. But my question to you is where there's smoke, there's fire number one. And what is PayPal seeing where they even consider something like that? Are they seeing the slowing growth, which then brings the multiple into consideration? You know, nobody cares about multiple on the good days. Uh, but when this things start going pear-shaped, everybody points to multiple as a reason why.
1: Yeah. And I think what's important is that this was the poster child for kind of fintech, for this really disruptive sort of new fang, sort of fangled, if you will, not fang, pun intended there, no pun intended, but, you know, kind of the disruption of the incumbents in the big financial space. And you and I used to remark at its highs in the summer, we had had like a $330 billion market cap, which was bigger than like Bank America, when you think about what they do and how many consumers consumers. consumers they touch, it kind of is dwarfed by the major money center banks. So the valuation was really high and you had two quarters of massive deceleration. And listen, it's lost $100 billion in market cap. There are only 100 stocks in the S&P 500 that have north of $100 billion in market cap. It's lost that since July from the highs because growth is expected to drop to basically the high teens percentage wise in earnings and sales next year from let's say the low 20s this year and the mid 20s last year, When you saw this massive acceleration of their products and their services, to me, that tells you what's wrong with this market. Investors want to shoot first, ask questions later on high multiples that aren't working, that are decelerating. But on the ones where the narratives are good and the buzzwords are good, there's no valuation that they won't pay. And that, I think, will be the reckoning in this market when we finally do have a meaningful correction.
0: For you armchair technicians out there, you'll notice that the 50-day moving average is now crossing through the 200-day on the downside, and it makes you wonder if they're sort of grasping at straws of PayPal, because I think they announced sort of an equity platform as well, which sort of makes you wonder. I mean, this is just a company that was growing now, just transforming into a mature company with, with less growth. You just wonder where the stock shakes out. But it's been a remarkable move since the summer. And again, it makes you wonder. Beneath the surface, we're seeing a lot of things that the broader market doesn't seem to care about one thing I do care about, though, Dan Nathan, is your Twitter account, because it is uh, what do they call it when something's on fire? They think they call it on fire. Yeah, we'll it's like use a fire text? emoji, a fire emoji. Right. I like the fire emoji. I try to use it as often as possible. You said the 10 year U.S. Treasury yield may never. And you chose to capitalize N, like a former president would capitalize <laughs> random words from time to time, be above three percent again, unless and you capitalize this, maybe it deserves a capitalization hyperinflation is going to change everything. And we have two charts to illustrate that, Dan.
1: Yeah, well, you know what I was doing there here. I mean, let, let's be frank. And we know this is upper left, bottom right. And we know the reasons over the last 30 r- years. For the most part, there's a lot of things going on, whether it be demographics, whether it be central bank action, and, you know, all these crises that seem to be accelerating in our financial world over the last 25 years or so. Um, but when you see that, and when you see that downtrend, I think what's really important, if you go back to 2000, and you go back to 2007, and you go back to 2019, All of those highs were at significant stock market highs, okay? And they all happened to correspond. So you had rising rates into them, and then you had these massive corrections. And in both instances of the last three instances of crises, we've seen basically the Fed fund rates go to zero. And finally, the 10-year U.S. Treasury yield also did the same in the last crises. And look at that dislocation here. But here we are. We're back at that level, guy. We're back in 2012, post-financial crisis. And then back in 2016, when there were a lot of growth fears about China, those were supposed to be generational lows in the 10-year U.S. Treasury yield at 1.4%. Now, they actually seem to serve as technical resistance. And when you look at that range, up to 2%, I know that you think that we should be at 2% in the 10-year U.S. Treasury yield, but it doesn't budge. And then, you look at that downtrend, I just don't see a scenario where we are anytime soon, given where sovereign bank, you know, like debt loads are that will ever be back at that 3% where we got back in 2018-19.
0: It's remarkable. I think global sovereign debt is now um, north of 110% of global GDP, which is an extraordinary number. This chart illustrates it all, Dan. You nailed it. I mean, this is, as you say, to a certain extent, upper left to lower right, although it's a bit of a flat line. But says all you need to see. I mean, we traded up to this line a couple of times and it failed right here. We're right against the 200 day moving average, this 145 level. I thought we were going to break through last week. We did anything. But as a matter of fact, I think at one point, 10 year yields went down to 142 or so. And it's just extraordinary. I don't want to get all macro on you, although that's what we're tasked to do. But uh, real yields have never been lower. I mean, we're talking about real negative yields and it's just a remarkable number for you economists out there. But this is a really interesting chart. And I think you nailed it. It is, by the way, now halftime at the macro, uh, the market call here. And it's time to bring in our good guest, the senior strategist at Daily FX, Chris Vecchio, who, by the way, has an irrelevant resemblance to the great and late Johnny Cash, the man in black. Chris Vecchio, how are you today?
2: Doing well, doing well. Hope you guys are doing well. We're doing really well are on fire this morning. This is a great chat. So well, far.
1: wait, hold on. Chris Vecchio, you were introduced as a good guest. I would say you're a great guest. This has got to be like his, I don't know, 20th appearance on the uh, on the market call, on the newfangled market call here. I think he's a great guest, Guy. But let me ask one question of Chris Vecchio here. Chris, you just heard our discussion about rates, OK? And when you think about it, Guy ended it, I think, in a really important way, that real rates have never been lower, right? Because where inflation expectations are and where the U.S. 10-year or where Fed Funds is right here. What if we saw inflation expectations abate, but we don't see growth accelerate, and then we don't see a scenario where rates are going higher in a meaningful way, and do we find ourselves in this stagflationary environment, which I think we would all agree would be very bad for stock market valuations right here.
2: Sure. Yes, stagflation would be bad for stock market valuations right now, but it doesn't look like we're looking down that pipeline in the the near term. We're going through a mini boom right now. Inflation is high, but so is demand. The labor market is improving very rapidly, as not what we've just seen through that most recent non-farm payrolls report, with the jobless claims figures persisting at cycle lows and and digging deeper. Um, It's just worth pointing out that the Atlanta Fed GDP tracker for Q3, which expected growth at 0.2%, lower than the actual reading of 2%, is now growth at 8.5% annualized for the fourth quarter. So that's extremely high. The data we've seen through October right now is incredibly strong. But this point that you bring up about real yields, we're talking measure yield, less inflation, digging to fresh all-time lows. And that may be one of the reasons coming off here And one of the reasons why gold is gaining ground right now, gold prices love lower real yields, and that could be a good thing for a bullion in particular. So uh, when we talk about a dollar here, uh, we're going to talk about the rate hike odds very shortly, but rate hike odds may have hit a near term ceiling. Uh, We see that uh, real yields are digging lower. This sets up a very interesting opportunity for the dollar to trade sideways here for a few weeks and for gold prices to perhaps break above that E 1835 swing level established over the summer, which. If we do so, we climb through that descending trend line from the August and June swing highs that we had from last year and this year, and that puts gold back in bullish breakout territory.
0: It's interesting, Chris, that you mention that because I think we saw some recent weakness in the dollar. I happen to think it's on the back of the potential for Lael Brainerd to be the next Fed chair. I think a lot of people are starting to talk about that. Obviously, an extremely dovish person, and we'll see what that means. I think that's why you saw this little bit lower tick in the dollar. And I think that's why you're seeing this uptick in gold. But now you mentioned the dollar being sideways. We saw that chart. Let's take a look at this gold chart because we are right up against that downtrend from last summer, that August high of last summer. What are your thoughts here? Are we breaking through It's Just one more failed attempt to get through that trend line.
2: I do think that gold could break out higher here. I'm not going to put much stock in it, however, because I think the longer term... Machinations of policy and the way markets are moving stand against gold having too significant of a rally. I also don't think that Brainerd is going to be the next Fed chair. Look, you have Powell, who is a Republican confirmed by a Republican Senate when Trump was president. Uh, and Republican senators have basically said that Brainerd is a non starter. I don't think she could pass a confirmation hearing, to be honest. And so I think that this is more of just doing the due diligence, keeping the Warren crowd of the Democratic Party happy, saying that they're interviewing the right people. Powell is going to get reappointed in somewhat of a Jessica Chastain in Zero Dark Thirty. I know you guys don't like 100 percent certainty, so I'll say 95 percent chance that Powell is uh, reappointed as Fed chair.
0: Such a great movie. I'm, I'm so with you on that. You are the man, Chris Vecchio, getting into the pop culture. Our third story here, and this has been I mean, Dan Nathan is the OG with this stuff. But Bitcoin, Ether hit records amid broad rally in cryptocurrencies. Dan, I think the market cap of crypto, please correct me if I'm wrong, is now north of two and a half trillion dollars, 25 percent or so of that of gold. We do have a breakout on our hands, Dan. Nathan, thoughts, please. Yeah, you know, I'd love
1: to. I'd love to go deeper with Michael Burry's thoughts um, about what's going on in markets in general, because I think he has to be thinking about you know crypto assets, and I don't want to say currencies, if you will, because really these things are acting like assets that are not bolted down in a rate environment where people are looking for some outperformance anywhere they can get them. And you know, I'd also make this point, you know, with rates coming in despite growth expectations, despite. stocks. Stock's doing really well and other um, assets like art and real estate, I mean, you know, crypto looks like they're not worried about higher rates. You know, if the if the worry it was that if we were going to start to tighten up a little bit that you might see crypto come in, that's not happening. And so, you know, you and I were talking about a guy over the last couple of weeks, that 200-day moving average in Bitcoin all the way down there at 45000 I mean, man, if you saw a back and fill towards 50000 on a technical perspective, the way this thing has moved over time, you love to see those 20, 30 percent um, pullbacks if you are a long, long-term sort of holder and looking to add because it's really hard to add on a breakout after you've seen 30,000 to 70,000. I know Chris Vecchio, you're taking a look at crypto assets here. Do you agree with that? I mean, that's a beautiful setup for a breakout, that little flag that it made. But I think a lot of long-term holders would have preferred a move back towards 50,000 to kind of reload on some.
2: Yeah, technically speaking, this is now in bullish breakout territory uh, and getting a pullback towards that 200-day moving average would take a lot of change in current market sentiment right now. We, we call Bitcoin and these other cryptocurrencies, you know, the risk asset, risk assets. So it, it really would mean that we see a, a bigger slowdown in the growth that we're experiencing right now in the NASDAQ, uh, a turnaround in growth conditions altogether. I find it most interesting, however, that when we took a look at different correlations across various instruments, uh Bitcoin and Ethereum, they tend to have the highest correlation with the two year, two year forward rate. So what would interest rates be two years from now uh, if we're looking at two years advance in the future beyond that? That suggests that, you know, even if rates do go higher, there is this inflation hedge aspect that's still coming into play. And yes, while the gold market cap, I believe, is a little over $11 trillion right now, incrementally, we've been talking about this for several months now, every time a portfolio manager has a dollar to invest in something that's considered an inflation hedge, are they going to gold and silver, or are they going to Bitcoin and Ethereum? And the answer remains Bitcoin and Ethereum. We're finding more and more utility, perhaps, for these cryptocurrencies as Web3 expands, as now this metaverse comes into play, uh, perhaps I think that this is a trend that can Facilitate more gains in the medium term here, so long as stocks continue to point higher, which I do think they will.
0: Dan, a lot of people think that Ethereum is the building block, the most impressive of all. Before we get to that, I just want to mention you know, on these Zoom type calls, people can message you. And one of our crack producers, Brendan Bresney, texted me during this thing and he said, Double top my, and I won't use the word he used, but a lot of people think. Forget about double tops. This sucker's going higher. Clearly, Bitcoin and it looks like Ethereum as well, which a lot of people think are the building blocks of all of this.
1: Yeah, I think what really changed in two thousand and twenty-one around the narrative about crypto is that it went from being like a cryptocurrency thing where we're worried about regulation to really more of a crypto asset or a new internet, if you will. And so you're going to keep hearing this term Web three, and it's also very interrelated to this other buzzword of MetaVerse, right? That we heard a whole heck of a lot of, um, about from Mark Zuckerberg. Um, just a few weeks ago here. And so when you think about that, what are the native currencies of a metaverse? They're going to be digital, right? And so there's going to be a lot of opportunities, I think, for different um, currencies for transactional purposes. But when we think about Ethereum, we do think about it, as you said, Guy, it's more of a platform where things like NFTs can be built on. And then you're using the ETH as almost gas and they call them gas fees to pr- uh, create things like NFTs and that sort of thing. So to me, there's a lot of reasons to kind of be involved in these things and I'm excited about it too. I'm intellectually very curious about it. I think like all of us, we probably wish we knew a lot more at the start of this year about these things and the different applications for them and the potential value of them. But I think Chris made the most important point is that the incremental dollar that might go towards a store of value for an inflation hedge is probably going to go towards crypto assets going forward. We're seeing that in NFTs, people who made a lot of money in crypto. They're reinvesting it within crypto. And I think that's going to be a big story of Web3 and the metaverse going forward.
0: Before we get to Chris Vecchio's chart about the Fed rate hike odds, which we're looking at now, I just want to mention that apparently Camilla Parker Bowles had a bit of a gas problem with President Biden over there in Glasgow, but that's completely off topic. Uh, Chris Vecchio, please talk to me about this. Your first chart, Fed rate hike odds
2: thing, uh, Mr. Bad Hat Harry over there. So when we talk about what's going on with the Fed meeting last week, uh, the Fed made pretty clear that they're going to be tapering asset purchases through June 2022. That's when things get zeroed out. It's also been no secret based on historical cycles, but also from what Fed Powell's said recently, uh, that they're not going to be raising rates before the taper is done. Now, they could accelerate the rate of tapering, but let's just say it's going to end in June. That means June becomes the first period in which the Fed can actually raise rates. Well, right now, rates markets are already pricing in June 2022 as the first period for when the Fed will raise rates. There's a bit of a ceiling here. We can't really go much higher, go much further or faster than we've already come the last few months. And this is a problem for the dollar. The dollar's been tracking Fed rate hike odds, those euro dollar spreads, the shape of the 2, 5, 10 butterfly uh, back to the summer. And if they really can't advance much further right now because there's a theoretical ceiling in place, then that means the dollar can probably come down, if not move, just move sideways here, Uh, For the foreseeable future. So it feeds back into our conversation earlier about lower real yields. It also feeds into the conversation about gold prices potentially breaking out. If the dollar is at a near term top because of what's happening on the Fed side of the equation, that gives other assets, particularly US dollar denominated assets, the ability to run higher. So that could mean higher crude oil prices, higher gold prices, may even give a look to some things like Bitcoin and Ethereum, uh, what have you.
0: And then you wonder what it means for the euro, because, you know, if you see a weakness in the dollar, how is it going to manifest itself here? Which is really interesting that you have the potential for I say potential for a bit of a double bottom here. I get it. It's short term. But what are your thoughts? I think, you know, if nothing else, we should be trading right around 117, I think, in the euro ish.
2: I would agree in the very near term. It looks like the euro has some room to run up into that one sixteen sixty 117 neighborhood here. I would caution, though, that the ECB and rates markets are at odds. Right now, the ECB is telling us that they're not going to be raising rates anytime soon and that they think rates markets have it wrong. Well, just this morning, I was looking at overnight index swaps, uh, markets pricing in July 2022 for the first ECB rate hike. So something's got to give there. Either the ECB is going to back off and the euro is going to rally significantly, or the ECB will continue pushing against rates markets, which kind of what the Bank of England did last week, and we're going to see the euro come back down. But in the very near term, I do think that room is there for the euro to rally higher here. There is that potential for a double bottom. We can get up into that 116.65 neighborhood, that former August low, the descending trend line from the swing highs that we had over the summer months uh, before looking for another potential sell opportunity. But if we find ourselves above 117, we're talking about a much more protracted uh, set of circumstances for euro gains, dollar losses heading into the final month of 2021.
0: Yeah, I agree with that. Past support uh, obviously becomes resistance. I made a joke a few minutes earlier that some would interpret as crude about Camilla Parker uh, uh, Bowles. Well, here's a crude chart just to sort of tie a ribbon on it, Chris Vecchio.
2: Well, gas prices are going higher. We're also seeing oil, the underlying, move up higher as well. We're coming up to a significant technical test right now from that ascending trend line from the August and September swing lows We traded underneath it at the start of November. We're now back there treating former support as resistance. We find ourselves back above 83.5 here by the end of this week. That puts crude oil back in bullish uh, breakout territory, continuing its uptrend, not just towards the 85-plus figure for new yearly highs, but ultimately moving up towards that OPEC fiscal break, even for 2021, which is $92 a barrel. They remain obstinate, even around COP26, about not changing oil production You've actually even heard that some OPEC ministers are now talking about a potential surplus next year, which makes them even more reticent about increasing supply in the very near term. So oil prices, again, the big factor here is global demand, global GDP. If you go back 30 years, look at global demand for oil on a quarterly basis, measured against global GDP. The correlation is 0.97. The U.S. economy is on fire right now, 8.5% annualized growth thus far through the early weeks of Q4. Oil prices should be moving up here in the final months of the year.
0: We are now 14 months into um, the macro setup, or now the market call macro, and that is the first time the words obstinate has been used. Thank you, Chris, for that. Dan Nathan, some parting thoughts, please.
1: Yeah, I just think, again, I want to kind of end with what we started here. I think some of the behavior, at least in the stock market, is not uh, particularly natural here. And I think it's worth noting. And I know that the stories are great. And there's a lot of enthusiasm about them. And I think that you don't want to be kind of, you know, fading these sorts of stories. But in the stock market, it's a little different, right? Like at a certain point, they need to be connected to fundamentals. We're seeing some disconnects also in the crypto markets, too. So I just warn that, you know, we might keep things together into year end. We know that seasonally, this is Good time of year, and there may not be a reason to do it. But I think the higher we go right now, might be the harder we fall um, at some point in early 2022. And I'll just make this last point, guy. We've had, I think, that the the steepest uh, peak to trough decline in the S and P 500 this year is maybe five and a half percent or so. We have uh, only had about four years in the last forty or so where there hasn't been a ten percent decline, and I think that's coming to a theater near you. So stay tuned.
0: I love that theater near you. That harder they fall, it sounds like a Clash song. By the way, Clash, one of the most overrated bands in the history of rock and roll, Dan. But that's for another show. I want to thank our guest, the great Chris Vecchio, the man in black, senior strategist at Daily FX. Today's Market Call Macro was brought to you by our presenting sponsors, IG, one of the fastest growing Forex dealers in North America. And of course, Dan Nathan, and I love this part, Open Exchange, because Dan, they manage virtual meetings that matter for the top companies around the world. We will see you next Tuesday. See you later.